select Zach Wilson, quarterback, BYU. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Turn the Jets podcast. I'm your host, Will Parkinson, at WillPaw11 on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Joined by a special guest today, Pro Football Focus Zone, Too High Podcast Zone, Deontay Lee. Deontay, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, man. I'm in full-on recovery mode for the next week after <laughs> spending, uh, spending some time in Indy, but I'm feeling good to be home. And obviously, I think that there was a lot taken away from this combine, so just kind of happy we, we can start getting into it now. Yeah, I'm, uh, I think everyone's body is uh, is hurting a little bit. Um, sleep was not a, a priority in Indy, I will put it that way. Um, but wanted to, you know, wanted to kind of hop in. Obviously, a lot of a lot happened this week in terms of rumors flying, talking to different coaches, scouts, GMs, but also getting to watch these guys work out and um, interact with them a little bit as well. Um, do you have any like big takeaways, I guess, from from you know for yourself from this week? Anything that um, kind of stood out in terms of what you're either hearing or um, you know, some interactions you got to have with your players or, you know, coaches, you know, anything like that? Um, overall, I mean, the, the first thing I, I took away from it was just how fast everybody tested at the combine. I think we got some reporting this morning that they had uh, brought in some new turf that they had put in for like 40-yard dash and stuff like that. So I guess there's a little bit of a conversation whether or not there was a fast track the guys were on. And that's usually kind of what we assume at a pro day. So I thought that was interesting. And some of the people I talked to from Next Gen Stats were saying that, I think that they blew out, like this by far blew out the most sub 4-4 guys that they had tested um, at the Combine. So that was really impressive overall to see the athleticism of this class. Um, in terms of like what we were hearing, you know, got to talk to some guys with some teams, you know, particularly talking with teams who may be kind of up in the air in terms of quarterbacks. Um, and while I won't give them away for, for sake of the relationship, I will say that almost to a man, every team that I think is up in the air about quarterback were very open and talking about wanting to make an improvement, but also kind of lamenting the fact that there's not really a whole lot of mechanisms to do so in this offseason. Um, I think that that's probably going to be the main story of the draft is that we're probably not going to get a bunch of movement around the top, or if we do, it's not necessarily going to be to grab a QB or to trade a veteran for picks or anything like that. So, you know, in some ways it'll be ho-hum in terms of like the biggest headlines, um, but I do think that what that allows for is a lot of conversation that's actually focused on the guys that are coming into the draft and where they slot in and whether or not where they're drafted is a good fit for who they are as players. Yeah, I heard a lot of similar stuff from a quarterback. Uh, some teams were um, almost honest to, to a point where I was like, are you trying to, are you trying to fuck with me here? Like, what? Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially so there's a few teams, um, you know, that I think have guys that, we have kind of question marks around in terms of, of vets that are getting paid a lot of money. Um, not those top tier guys. It's definitely a, a spot I would look in. Um, I would be, I'd put it this way. There's a team, the AFC or the AFC South with a very good roster that I believe we will not be seeing uh, a certain redhead quarterback under center in uh, 2022 yeah. for them. Yeah. Um, the other thing I actually, I, mean, I took away the same thing as you. I think uh, like only like 17 guys have ever run 4-2 at the combine and Baylor had multiple guys this week run sub, yeah, you know, sub, sub like 4-2-6. Like, it wasn't even like they were running, you know, whatever. It was, that was nuts. Um, obviously, Jordan Davis was was fun to watch. You know, a lot of these Georgia guys, I think. Um, Lewis Seen's a guy who we'll talk a little bit about later in the podcast, but to run four, sub 4-4, four, four, um, that was not something I saw 
coming. I thought he was like, he's like, he plays very fast, but sometimes guys that play fast aren't always actually fast. He's just really instinctual and right. also has that speed. So edge rusher class looks really good. The top end of that corner class. I think that's where you see the strength in this, in this class, the receivers ran fast. The guy like Garrett Wilson, who um, consistently mocked to the jets at 10, obviously the Calvin Ridley stuff today, we don't hit on too much. Um, I would, if you want to see his clone, that's faster. He, uh, he's available at eight for the Falcons potentially. So um, all those stood out. A couple of guys not testing was a little unfortunate. I thought for, um, I would have loved to see Evan Neal test just from a pure yes. selfish standpoint. He's a freak of nature. The way that some of the other tackles tested, I would have loved to have had his numbers to use as a point of comparison. Oh, absolutely. Especially the jumping numbers and stuff. Everyone's seen the, the split squat, uh, the box jump and stuff. Uh, Linderbaum not testing. That, it doesn't hurt him. Uh, but at the same time, he's a guy that as a center, you know, you would like to see him test Drake London, Derek Stingley, other guys with some injury concerns mm-hmm. uh, popped up. But I want to kind of get into, we'll get more into some of this draft picks, but I want to kind of touch on first and lead into this in terms of an offseason preview of the Robert Sala scheme, Gus Bradley, however you want to phrase it, you know, Seattle, San Fran, all these different ones that have kind of all merged over the last you know decade. The Jets played a lot more cover one last year, but generally speaking, they sit in cover three and cover four and, um, you know, try to get after the passer with edge rushers. And there's a bit of a misconception. I think I know we've talked about this where like, oh, it does. The secondary doesn't matter as long as you have good edge play. And um, kind of wanted your thoughts on the scheme as a whole, just because the NFL is always changing a lot of too high stuff. You know, shout out to your podcast. Um, dominated the NFL this year, but teams started to adjust. How do you kind of see the scheme as a whole, you know, in 2022? And um, what do you think is really the key to making that that scheme go? Well, what I will say is that, like, when we have this pass rush versus coverage conversation, and obviously the company I work for, Pro Football Focus, is usually kind of out front beating the drum the loudest, you know, on with however people kind of fall um, in that argument. What I What I usually say is that it's kind of like a sliding scale. So the more zone coverage you want to play, that means like the more air spatially that you're allowing for some of these routes. And if you're doing that, the higher a level of pass rush that you need to add to a layer of your pass defense is what I would say. And that's something that obviously has been talked about with Robert Sala, especially in that 2019 San Francisco run, right? You're talking about having, you know, three, if not four plus pass rushers up front between Buckner, Armstead, Bosa, you know, so there's, there's that kind of part of the conversation and then what you're talking about with the Jets, which is like if you're playing a lot of cover one or just a lot of man period, what that opens the door for more of is pressures. And if you're running more pressures, pardon me, if you're running more pressures, that means that you probably don't need to have blue chip pass rush as much. We've seen this with the Dolphins. Uh, we've seen this with the Patriots and Brian Flores is with the Patriots. Um, you know, you'll see this at different points with different teams. There are ways to manufacture pass rush with your pressure packages or bluffing pressures, you know, things like that, if you're willing to live more in a man coverage world. So to me, I think that that's usually a little bit more important than having conversations about like, are we a 3-4 or a 4-3? Do we want to play more nickel? Do we want to play more dime? Do we want to play more split safety or more single high? What I care more about is like, how tight in coverage do you actually want to play? And then based on that, that will kind of tell me what level of pass rush you want, even though obviously we would all like to have some perfect world where you have, you know, a Khalil Mack level edge rusher like the Browns had, you know, with, with Vic Fangio, where you have this, this amazing pass rush and all these guys who are plus coverage players. Like that's obviously the dream, but you know, we know, you know, throughout the history of the league is that those are very kind of short lived moments and more times than not, you're going to have to make some kind of sacrifice. So I think that that's kind of where Robert Sala, I'm sure is at in terms of how he wants to address year two as a head coach. 
Yeah, something that I think um, is important to kind of mention, I know me and you talked a lot about this, um, you know, over some beers in Indy, is that as great as scheme is on the defensive side of the ball, you need talent. Um, right. And talent rules all on the defensive side of the ball. Look, Brandon Staley was the Rams defensive coordinator, um, and I love Brandon Staley, we both do, but was the Rams defensive coordinator two years ago and goes to the Chargers and they don't have as much talent on defense, although they do have talent that I think got underutilized a little bit, but they're the 31st or 32nd ranked defense. And right. the Rams did not drop off that much. Um, if anything, they, you know, obviously getting Von Miller and stuff improves them. But if you have that elite level talent, it, it changes the game. You even look back at, you know, where the Jets had those prime years, they had elite blue chip level players in the secondary and they were able to manufacture Calvin Pace to have 10 sacks. Sean Ellis had 10 sacks, right? So um, I think that's just important to mention. I know everyone wants to talk about the scheme and stuff like that. Scheme's important, but um, it's also, you got to have guys to execute it. Um, I guess kind of in that in that mold, um, the Jets have holes. They need another edge rusher. They do need another number one corner. Um, they need two safeties, and they probably need an off-ball linebacker, which, again, they can address. They have the, the resources to do it. So pro football focus, they have the number, you know, has ranked them the number one off-season resources um, in terms of, you know, capital and free agency. Where would you like to see them go? How, I guess how would you like to see them address, um, you know, that stuff, obviously some corners on the market, some edge rushers, and then a lot of talent in the draft as well. To me, and they're actually, this is not particular to the Jets. I've had the same conversation with the Chargers, with the Vikings, with some other teams that are kind of like, you know, maybe at a, at a bit of a crossroads in terms of how they want to go about addressing their offseason defensively. Um, a lot of this, I think, is going to be based on whether or not or who is willing to pay top dollar to get a guy like J.C. Jackson. Because through that, I think there's just an entire web of, you know, potential opportunities. Because one of the things you and I talked about, um, I want to say, you know, right before I took off from the combine was the fact that J.C. Jackson not being tagged now changes the way that I feel about James Bradbury being on the market. And some of the immediate reporting was that the NFL kind of had a valuation of like a fourth round pick on trading for a guy like that. And obviously, James Bradbury is not going to step in and be like some first team all pro level corner you know, but he is serviceable. You can step him in right now. He can give you day one, you know, day one starter value plus starter value if you have the right kind of uh, infrastructure built around him. So you kind of have that like as a potential way to address maybe the DBs. I will say there's probably not much in the way of edge rushers in this free agency class. And he's not like world changers, um, you know, so if you already had a blue chip edge rusher, this is probably a good year in free agency to go get a, a secondary guy um, who you're maybe not asking to go get eight to 10 plus sacks, you know, but just to be another guy who can help the same way that like Jadavian Clowney has basically been used by every team that he's been picked up by. Mercenary. Um, exactly. At this part of his career. So I think that if you want to address it with veterans, you could. I just think particularly for the Jets. And I think some of the up and downs that Zach Wilson had, I would understand it would probably support them saying, let's get as many adults, as many vets as possible to go help Zach Wilson and help this offense, help LaFleur kind of implement it the way that he wants to. I think that there were times where they were just too young offensively, you know, obviously having Becton out of the lineup for a whole bunch, it, it almost hurts you doubly because you're not getting a level of play you need from your tackle and the tackle that you drafted to be the dude is not available. So you don't get a real fair, complete evaluation of him within the offense. So I think getting as many adults, as many guys who can help Zach Wilson kind of find his voice as a leader and quarterback 
would probably be the best way to to attack free agency. And then from there, if I'm the Jets, what I'm really hoping and what I might do is maybe kind of chum the waters up on some of these questions that have been coming up about Derek Stingley, you know, and who he is as a corner. And obviously some of this is kind of conditional in terms of like the Liz Frank injury. You know, there's been talks about maybe some setbacks in the recovery process and, you know, his timeline might not be what he wanted it to be ideally. But if you get anything in terms of medicals that lets you know that he's not at any risk for further injury and he's kind of sliding because we got these tackles at the top of the draft, we got these two edge rushers at the top of the draft. Maybe you can go and slip and get a guy like a Stingley. You know, you can go get a guy like a Kyle Hamilton, who I'm kind of interested to see how you feel about him, given that he's more of like a 4-6 than a 4-4 guy, um, and kind of see, you know, how that kind of stacks up. But I think getting that top flight DB is probably act one in rebuilding this defense. And then from there, it's just like, how can you get surplus value for edge rush guys um, and linebackers? You know, you're probably not going to find a Fred Warner for Robert Saleh anyway. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, that was the one guy I was like, I hope the Niners don't pay him because that yeah. would he it was, seemed like, you know, that was a lock. I, I agree with you. I think um, the Jets on the interior offensive line side of the ball, everything I heard all week was they will be paying, uh, they will be, be paying a right guard. And um, we'll see about center. Like they've Connor McGovern there, who's he graded out well in terms of PFF, but there were some communication errors and things like that. The nature that ABT struggled with a little bit. And um He's set to make her about nine or ten million dollars this year. It's basically if they cut him, he's you know they could basically cut him for free. Um, and if you wanted to pay Ryan Jensen, for example, or someone of the sort, you could kind of right. swap out there with a little bit of money. Um, receiver, I think they'll you know go one in the draft, one in uh, one in free agency. That's what I kept hearing all week. Same thing at tight end. Right. Defensively is the interesting part, right? Because you've got these, you've got a really good edge class. They don't. It's not the Bosa you know, Miles Garrett type, but that's okay. I think those guys are generational for a reason. I think we need to right. step over you. You know, you're not going to get one in every class, unfortunately. Um, but I think if you get KT to slip to four, I think there is a lot of, what I kept hearing is I wouldn't buy so much of the noise from, from teams. Uh, I don't think people care that KT is a me guy. I know there's some teams that me care. If you're a me guy and you hit the quarterback, I don't really care. There's these concerns with Michael Parsons a year ago. Um, and he think he turned out okay. Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> um, and then look, if you, if you, I'll hit on Kyle Hamilton here in a second, but if you look at a guy like Stingley, um, it's sauce isn't going to make it to 10, uh, based on the way he ran yesterday. That was the one thing everyone wanted to confirm, but look, if Stingley is sitting there at 10 in the year of the jets and you go and you come out of this off season with having two first round picks and you get Kayvon Thibodeau and Derek Stingley, if you told me that in July or, or August of this year, I would tell you you're on drugs. Um, That's a great way to drop some diesel gas. In, yeah, in <laughs> that is it. All of a sudden, look, it's, you just want to go high upside. And I think something Connor Rogers and Travis Sikkim I mentioned on their pod earlier was just like having those two first round picks allows you to kind of go really high upside. And the Jets have gone high upside. Um, Makai Becton was a high upside pick. I, I think people forget that like there was a lot of these concerns that we have now with Makai Becton were the same ones coming out. So mm-hmm. um, Kyle Hamilton's interesting. I, I was disappointed in the 40. I wasn't like, wow, he's a bad prospect, but I thought he's like four or five guy, like four or five O guy, maybe max or minimum, I should say. And I, to run four, six, one, I know he, he was official four, five, nine, you know, at the same, at the same time. While the strides don't match, like the strides cover a lot of it, and he's very similar testing to a guy like Justin Simmons, for example. I just think if you're going to call someone a generational unicorn, I expect generational Generational unicorn times. Yeah. So I don't think it, I don't know how much he slips. I think maybe he slips to eight to Atlanta, maybe, maybe to not. I don't know. I mean, maybe he gets to 10 for the Jets. Look, if he's at there at 10 for the Jets, it's a whole nother conversation. I just don't think he's taken before. Yeah. Yeah, There's, 
the Jets are in a good spot. Um, I, I'm I'm of the opinion that there will be a run on tackles. I think we all kind of, you know, Jacksonville, Houston, you know, the Jets, obviously, they could go Quanu or, or Neil or one of these guys. Carolina needs a tackle. The Giants need a tackle. Like, everyone pretty much in the top 10 needs, a, needs an offensive lineman. So you kind of hope a Trevor Penning, for example, who I don't have anywhere near a top 10 player in this class. Right. But teams love, you know, love guys who throw other people in the other people's ACLs. So <laughs> it was good on Twitter. But um, there was a couple of guys I want to kind of get your opinion on. We kind of mentioned a few of them there. Um, from a defensive perspective, how do you where where are you at with Kayvon Thibodeau? Because he is getting as polar becoming as polarizing as it gets. Now people, you know, oh, he quit on the combine. I'm not buying into that, but um, where do you kind of stand with him? Because the talent's obviously there. I think that. I don't buy into much of this stuff that I think has been thrown about thrown around with him personality wise. Um, you know, it would be one thing if he was maybe walking out of Oregon and it was like, Oh, well the day that he w- the day that he declared everybody through a party. Cause you sometimes hear that about guys, right. Where very talented players declare. And while there's maybe not a bunch of negativity leaving there, people in around the building will kind of whisper to you and be like, eh, I think our locker room is probably better off not having this presence there. I don't know if it's that, I think that the players, the players in the locker room at Oregon seem to have a pretty good understanding of him as a player. Um, I think that he showed really well in the press conference. You know, there is a balance to be had in, you know, yes, I'm about me. I believe I'm a star as a player, but I also think that he knows how to present himself in a way that lends me to being confident that he can buy into trying to do what's necessary to win. He does not strike me as a me guy at the expense of winning or team success. So I don't buy into that so much. Um, as far as the combine goes, like, I thought that everything that he did was fine. You know, I, I'm not mad at, you know, a guy maybe not trying to not trying to prove and every drill that he needs to be number one overall. Because if you turn on the tape, and this is one thing I was talking about with uh, with my good colleague, uh, Derek Klassen, is like, you can see, even though it's still raw, that there is a plan with everything that he's doing. And I think that all it takes is maybe 5% refinement in each of these things before we really see that A tier, you know, S tier type of edge rusher. So you can see him trying to work speed early, power later. There are times where he's working a long arm as a pass rush moving. Maybe he works a swipe and rip or his inside crossover. And when I'm seeing those things, obviously with the athletic frame that he has and his explosiveness, that's my, my big takeaway is like, okay, the second that he really spends some time in refining and figuring out what his go-to move is, he will probably be the exact animal that we want to see him be in the NFL. And he's actually versatile enough in, in terms of skill set to where if he were in, you know, more of a 3-4 type of scheme where sometimes you're rushing, sometimes you're dropping, he could handle that as well. I think he's got enough lateral range to be able to pursue the ball if it hits a perimeter too. So I have no problem with him as a prospect, you know, not to say that everything that's said about him is trumped up because, you know, the Fox Sports interview obviously kind of stands out as a moment, but there have definitely been some things where, that he said where I was like, dude, I really could have gone without you saying this publicly or not everything is appropriate to say in an interview setting. Um, but I think that for the most part, he's fine. And all the things that have made him, you know, at different points, a number one overall prospect to some, and obviously a consensus top five to top 10 guys for other, I don't, I don't have any reason to walk off of that. And he should still be considered right in that same conversation for potential top three pick. Yeah, it's someone asked him about it. It was like the second question of his presser was like, do you regret the interview? And he was like, no. And well, I don't necessarily agree. Um, right. I think it was good that I kind of like the fact that he's unapologetic about who he is. He, saw, right. he spoke about that a bunch. Um, I know he gets a lot of his Jamal Adams comps. Um, 
there's a difference there. I think Jamal cuts that from having a dad that was in the NFL. And I think he's, he's yeah. Jamal's pretty sensitive about a lot of stuff. And I think that's where he struggles is he listens to everything. Yeah. Um, I don't know that Kayvon listens to anyone, which is in a good way. Like, I don't, I think he right. just, he loves himself and that's fine. Um, he, again, I said this today, dude, you can be the most selfish person in the world. If you hit the quarterback six times a game, nobody cares. Um, right. right. There's, there's, a, that's the one, one of those positions where it doesn't matter. Same thing with the receiver. Like, it just doesn't matter. You score touchdowns, people get over it. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I was impressed with him. I, I thought he even – he spoke a little bit of – like he spoke through his plan and how he steals tape from everyone in, in, in a good way. I thought that was interesting to hear how much of a film junkie he is and, you know, how much he liked to be able to watch film. That's that's stuff's important. Me and you have both seen, as USC guys, like Oregon sometimes very much misuses their top prospects. Yes. Wink, wink, Justin Herbert. So, um <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if those guys take another step, you know, as we go along here, two more names. I just kind of wanted to, to hit on Jermaine Johnson and Trayvon Walker. We can kind of combine these two guys or, or that second tier of edge rushers that we, you know, kind of fall right in, you know, behind David Ojabo as well. He's not a scheme fit for the jets. I don't want to hit on too much, but mm-hmm. Trayvon Walker's got unicorn miles Garrett, like athleticism, but um, I don't feel like he has a plan in, the, in his pass rush moves. And then, you know, he's amazing against the run. And then, a guy like Jermaine Johnson just is like really solid at everything. Both guys are a little bit better against the run right early enough in their career. Obviously the senior bowl, we saw some good stuff from Jermaine Johnson. Where are you at with those two guys? Because you see them at four in some mock drafts, you see them middle of the first round, but it feels like neither guy's getting out of the top 15 now after some really impressive work at both in Mobile and in Indy. Right. So I'll start with Walker. Like, and this is something I think that we spoke about with our guy, Brandon Thorne as well. And maybe some other guys are there for that, which is just like, Clearly, the NFL has just decided that they are not going to allow a guy like Walker to fall off the top five because of what out of nowhere, allows. by the way, yeah, this, he was like, not a first round guy like two months ago, which is just fascinating to me because like when I turn on the tape and I really don't mean this like pejoratively, like you just have to say this objectively. He does not have a plan as a pass rusher when he gets off the ball. It doesn't mean that he's not explosive off the ball. It doesn't mean that he's not powerful off the ball. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have the tools to be a good pass rusher. It's just that he doesn't have a plan. Now, like, one of the things that I will say, again, talking with my guy Derek Klassen was, like, I think that it speaks volumes that their best pass rushers were Channing Tindall and N'Kobe Dean, in my opinion, and Jalen Carter, who's obviously not um, draft eligible this year. So I do think that it kind of speaks volumes that a guy that is 6'5", played at 270 to 275, and wasn't dominant enough as a pass rusher for Georgia to feel like, they could just line up and four down and play defense and just get after the quarterback that way. So I really have some questions about what the NFL is looking at in terms of a projection by year two, year three of what they think he can be as a pass rusher. And then you look at that, like in contrast to like a Jermaine Johnson, who I think is maybe closer to being maxed out in terms of who he is as a pass rusher. and yeah, athletic Super guy. high floor. Extremely, like I'm not sure exactly how much more you're going to get out of him than what you've seen in the last two seasons at Florida State, and that's not to say that that's a bad player that you're getting because you're going to get a plus value, I believe, as an edge rusher and as a run defender. Um, I just don't know with Jermaine if you're going to get to that top tier or threaten that top tier of pass rush. Um, and my thing with Walker is just like I don't know what his role is for a defense other than like three, four outside backer or like under front defensive end on first and second down and immediately kicked into a three technique on third down. And those guys are immensely valuable and it allows you to do a whole lot in terms of twists and stunts. And we've seen teams like the Rams use guys that way. 
I just don't think that that's a top five pick. Like, if you're a top five, top ten pick as an edge rusher, I need to know that at some point on your rookie deal, you're going to get eight-plus sacks, that I can count on you blindly to go get eight-plus sacks or at least be high pressure rate, right, high 20% pressure rate. You know, for us, we track pass rush run weight um, in the NFL for PFF. I want to see that number at the 15, 18, 20% mark, you know, where I know that you're winning these reps. And that's just not who he's been at Georgia, and I I don't know if that's going to change in the NFL. Yeah, so – this is why I don't think the Jets, maybe if he's at there at 10, I guess you can have a different conversation, but like the Jets just paid John Franklin Myers four years, $55 million. And while I obviously Trayvon Walker's ceiling is much higher. I love JFM and, and that's great, but they're very similar. It's the same thing where like JFM plays in outside um, in a five tech when first and second down and then he kicks inside a three tech with Sheldon Rankins on pass rush downs and like, He's a six to eight sack a year guy that's really good against the run and causes pressures. But like JFM was an undrafted guy that like or fourth round, no, he was fourth round guy that got cut early. And like it's just it's tough for me to argue. Jermaine Johnson's a guy at 10, I'd be more comfortable with. Again, I think he's got super high floor. His ceiling is much lower. I don't not much lower. It's the lowest of those five, the big five edge rushers. Ajabo's got an insane ceiling, but I, he can't play against the run and he doesn't play the jet scheme. So it's not gonna work. Right. Um I just feel like if KT's there, it's impossible for the Jets to pass on him. Just the way it just doesn't make any sense. Robert Sala loves edge guys. The Jets want to build the trenches up. Mm-hmm. When I hit on one other position group that I think was super impressive yesterday at the combine, we talked about Kyle Hamilton's consensus safety one. And it's not changing for me that he ran a four six where he where his ranking is among his class. I just think it's where you feel comfortable taking him in the top ten. Mm-hmm. Um, Lewis Seen's a guy who had a really good day. Jaquan Brisker is a guy people like. Jalen Petrie is a guy people really like. Um, there's about 17 other safeties that I think you can kind of convince yourself are really good. Do you have any favorite guys out of this class that stand out to you that you feel like can kind of play or scheme versatile or just guys that you really, you know, like watching? So obviously, you know, Kyle Hamilton, like you said, like I'm not moving him how I and how I feel about him based on the 40 that he ran. He's still safety one because the tape is just overwhelming in that way. And it's been like that from day one in his career at Notre Dame. So I'm very comfortable in who he is. It's just maybe like, maybe he's not just going to be a guy that you can drop in the middle of the field and he can be like Sean Taylor for you. That might not be it, but he might just be like a B plus level of Derwin James. So I, why had one team, I'm not going to say who it was. And it was their safety coach told me that he thinks that Kyle Hamilton is as good, if not better than Sean Taylor coming out. And I will tell you, there's probably a reason why that organization is still struggling. I will phrase it that way because <laughs> so, that was scary. Yeah. yeah, that's a bit ambitious for me. Um, but I will say, you know, mo- moving off of Hamilton, like Lewisine is obviously a guy that I've been banging the table for, I think, basically since about the midpoint in the college football season. Um, and I think that the combine was huge for him because I think he just kind of walked in with some preconceptions of just being the hitter safety, just the tackler type of safety. But I think to come in 6'2", 200 pounds, so you've got the size um, that you need to be able to do multiple things as a safety, and then to go out and run the times that he did, I think that that probably was the biggest surprise out of the DB class. Um, you know, to your point, you know, something that we were kind of talking about earlier, if he would have came out and ran like 455, I'd have like, okay, good enough. You can do the job as a safety, and I feel good about you as maybe like a round two pick because of what you do as a tackler and you probably do just enough in coverage to justify that. But to come out and be like, okay, you're like a four, four, low four, three guy. And you can tackle the way that you do. And I think that this, this is one thing that I do think is a great feather in his cap. Like throughout his entire career at Georgia, 
they have basically used Lewisine anytime they've needed to solve a problem in their secondary, and he has always risen to the occasion. Whether it's playing as a spy, you know, being a seventh DB in the box when you're playing a team like LSU, um, playing in the middle of the field at times. Obviously, they do a lot of quarters and cover two stuff, and he's been able to range, you know, from the seam out to the half if need be. So you're going to get a guy that has a lot of reps in multiple things schematically that is executed at a high level and all those things. And then obviously that ability to go tackle out in open space, knowing that he's fast enough to track the ball and has enough tape of showing that he's a proficient tackler, both in the box and out in space. I would feel really good about going out and grabbing him if I'm between 28 and 32 in the first round. And, you know, I maybe lost the one or two guys that were, you know, ahead of him on the BPA list. Yeah, no, I'm, a, I'm of the opinion that um, I think the Jets should be very aggressive early. Jordan Whitehead's a guy that stands out to me that I talk with people about at the mm-hmm. time. I think so be yes. a great fit for Whitehead the Jets. Is, yeah, Whitehead with perfect. Whitehead and Scene or, you know, Justin Reed or guys like that, like super young, really still physical. I just don't know that the Jets break the bank for Marcus Williams. Um, potentially, uh, Jesse Bates is a guy who's coming on this pod in a few weeks. It would have been nice if he was a Jet just for the <laughs> for the optics, but it's okay. We'll uh, we'll, we'll make it work. Um, no, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. Brisker's a guy that I like a lot. Um, like I mentioned, Jalen Peacher is super impressive. The way he his his football instincts are, are awesome. And I know people hate talking about instincts and leadership yeah. and culture and stuff, but um, especially at the senior level, the way he was in one on ones, the ability to he doesn't stop his feet at the top of routes when guys press him for leverage. He doesn't get pressed. He's never panicked. And I think that's something that's super impressive. Um, one last guy I wanted to mention that I think got a little too much hype early and I think is now much more in play in that 25 to 35 range. And I think people, both the inside linebackers, more Devin Lloyd in this case, Devin Lloyd is prototypical size, um, ran okay. Again, similar to Kyle Hamilton, like if I'm going to take a non-premium guy that high and need you to be like an elite level athlete. Look, if Devin Lloyd falls to the second round, which is initially where I thought, you know, he would go just because of the value of the position. The Jets are much, very much in position to take him, but um, he's a guy that I just 471 and then 468. I just, I struggle with that. And N'Kobe Dean didn't test. And I think he's a guy that like, it's a great football player, but He's kind of short, he has short arms, and he's not that fast. And I, it's right. really difficult to take those guys early. So um, is there any other linebackers or those two guys to you that are the, kind of the class of, uh, class of the position? Uh, so I'll give, you my, I'll give you the guy that I really like last, and I'm sure that you know people who are familiar with some of the draft stuff that I've been talking about know the guy that I'm going to mention in the end. But with Devin Lloyd, I actually think it's funny. While it, it stinks for his pocketbooks, I think, it'll actually probably be better for him early in his career that the combine turned out the way that it did for him. Cause I think that getting him away from all of that, like top 10, you know, could he threaten the top half of the draft uh, um, or top half of the first round in the draft? I think that that would have been a little bit, a little bit of a reach, not only in positional value, but what you're asking out of him in terms of roles. Like I do. Would have been the Patrick queen thing where like, and then you get screwed. Exactly. Like, there is, don't get me wrong. There is some value to being six, four, you know, being at that weight and being, or being like a guy that was like a safety convert, a guy who used to play receiver and now plays backer. Like, I do think that there's some value to that. And you can see a bit of it on tape. But one of the things that I said when I looked at him was like, it is still very clear that this is a guy who played DB before that's being asked to play linebacker. You can see it in the way that he takes on contact, the way that he navigates and negotiates space in the box. Um, Some of the ways that he tackles, like out on check downs, you see him kind of flying by guys often. So there's still kind of an, an element of, understanding the tempo and pace that you have to play with as you get closer to the line of scrimmage. 
Um, I do think that you can maybe drop him in as a fifth rusher the way that Michael Parsons was used. Just don't expect him to look like the defensive player of the year the way that Michael Parsons did as an edge rusher uh, because that's just not what he is. So it's much more of a project. I would say that he's a lot closer to an Isaiah Simmons type than a Micah Parsons type. So, and obviously that's kind of a cautionary tale of taking these guys who are balls of clay and trying to find something definitively for them in, in terms of a role early. So that's kind of where I'm at with Lloyd. Um, the guy that I really do like is Chad Muma. Um, I think coming in 40 inch vertical, that was like amazing for me. He is an explosive guy on tape, but putting up a number like that was like, okay, wow, maybe you really are at that top tier. The four six for me is just fine. It shows on tape. I didn't expect him to be much faster than that. And I think the short area of quickness that he plays with not only shows up in terms of his ability to kind of run through uh, running lanes when he sees them, but obviously his comfort out in coverage and his ball skills. That's a guy who used to be a safety that moved down to linebacker that I think was a lot more equipped in terms of his physical profile to do so than a guy like Lloyd was. And that's a guy that really hasn't had any heat in terms of top 15, top half of the draft. He's almost like consistent consensus early to mid second round. And if that's where he's at, it's not a steal to me if you end up trading back or you're in a position to go get him early in the second round. I would love to have a player like that to play at the second level of the defense. Even if he doesn't turn out to be Fred Warner, you're going to get a high-level production from him, if nothing else, as a coverage linebacker. Yeah, there's that that second-tier class of Muma, Tyndall, Brian Osimo, yep. Brian Osimo, Quay Walker, all these guys. So um, now I'm on the same page. I love Brian Osimo. I'm probably... Other than Mike Renner, I'm not sure anyone else is higher on Brian Osamoa than me. Um, he didn't run great, which is kind of to be expected. He's more of like a – he's shorter strides. I, I wasn't expecting a, a super fast 40. Um, Trey Anderson running 4-4-1, sick athlete. Um, he is very raw, though, if you watch yes. him on tape. He, he's raw. a guy that, like, in, if he goes to the right spot in two years, could be a pro bowler. And if he goes to the wrong spot, he could be a Darren Lee. I'm out of the league in three or four years bouncing around. So, um Obviously, you know, a really fun week. I'll have more stuff, you know, on the combine coming up, uh, you know, later this week. Make sure you're following Deontay on Twitter. I believe it's PFF underscore D Lee, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Obviously, the two high pod himself and Seth Molina do a great job. Obviously, as you can tell, Deontay is incredibly smart uh, with, you know, with, you know, it makes you smarter on a daily basis. So uh, make sure you're following him there. And, um, you know, we'll, uh, we'll have some more content for you guys later in the week, but we appreciate you joining us. Thank me. And the one thing I got to say before I tap out here is fight on. Yeah, fight on, baby. Everyone yes, knows Drake London yes, at 10. Let's go. Uh, <laughs> nah, I appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk to you guys soon.